0: It's a joy to be able to bring you the preaching of the Word this evening. And uh, to that end, if you would please open your Bibles to Psalm 46. We just sang it, and so then we'll read it, and then we will hear it preached. So let's uh, turn to Psalm 46, and uh, let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Psalm 46, uh, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The God of Jacob is our fortress. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you give unto us this Sabbath day rest, a day upon which we can cease from our labors, where we can rest from our concerns, and we can enter into your presence with the people of God, that we can enter into your courts with thanksgiving and praise, where we can stop and not only pray, O Lord, to you, sing to you, sing unto you praises and acknowledge your sovereignty, your holiness, and your might, but we can also have you, O Lord, speak to us as your needy children, where you can feed us with Christ, the manna from heaven, and where you nourish us and strengthen us, you comfort, you guide, and you lead us. We pray, O Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that you would remove the sin from our hearts and from our eyes, that you would glorify yourself in our midst, and that indeed uh, that you would teach us that you are our fortress. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 2004, the third largest earthquake ever recorded in a seismograph occurred in the Indian Ocean off the coast of a number of different Southeast Asian countries. Uh, The the earthquake measured at 9.1 on the Richter scale. It killed more than a quarter of a million people. It produced a tsunami with waves as high as 100 feet. And it was, as you can imagine, one of the deadliest natural disasters in all of recorded history. I think such is the nature uh, of the tumult that we find here recorded in the opening verses of Psalm 46 here in verse 2. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now it's quite possible that the psalmist here uh, has to us, uh, gives to us uh, reflections on the heels of a natural disaster. That certainly can be in view. But at the same time, I don't think we can restrict or should restrict the psalm's applicability and relevance simply to times of natural disaster where we might see a storm blow through and and destroy a lot of things or when we might uh, be near the coast where we can see floodwaters come in. While it certainly can address those types of situations, at the same time, I think that the psalmist can be speaking in hyperbole and exaggerated prose Because often this is the way that we feel uh, when we have turmoil in our lives. It doesn't take a natural disaster to put trouble into our hearts, say, for example, in the face of great sin. Great sin can seemingly undo us. It can make us feel as if the world is coming to an end. It can make us feel as if the ground beneath our feet upon which we walk is unstable and unsteady and we're unable to get a hold It can make us feel like we do not want to get out of bed. It can make us feel as if the world is coming to an end and perhaps that we have failed God and because we have failed God, he has abandoned us. On the other hand, it might not be personal sin. It might be great tumult in the culture and that is certainly something that we are watching continuing to unfold uh, in the news on a daily basis. I mean, if we think about it, uh, I've been able to observe over the last couple of years, as all of us have, that the times in which we lived have been somewhat unsettling. You know, maybe I just didn't take notice of the the, the unsettling nature of the times in the years prior, but whether we're talking about the pandemic, whether we've been talking about storms, or now we can say political storms, it seems as if the foundations uh, upon uh, which our nation rests have been shaken and continue to shake to their core. You know, perhaps we could say a generation or two ago in the 60s, we observed similar types of uh, you know, chaotic times. But now with people regularly rioting and protesting and vandalizing and attacking, uh, say, pregnancy centers uh, in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Uh, We could perhaps attach these words, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, it seems as if things are coming undone. You know, I, I can remember my children learning a song, the wheels and the bus go round and round. Well, these days I feel like singing, the wheels and the bus are falling off, falling off, falling off. You know, how much worse can things get? Whether we're talking about inflation, whether we're talking about war, whether we're talking about protests and riot, whether we're talking about diseases, it seems as if the news is ever so interested in putting out the next disease that's just over the horizon and get ready because here it comes. On the other hand, I suspect that for the people of God who suffer persecution in various parts of the world where Christians suffer bodily harm, maybe those types of concerns aren't high on their list. Maybe there are wars, and maybe there are pandemics, and maybe there's economic unrest. But for the Christian who wants to go and worship the Lord and yet cannot, because of fear of being arrested or perhaps being beaten or killed, that too can be quite unsettling. It may make that type of person feel as if the Lord is gone, as if the earth is giving way, as if there is a flood of unrest that simply inundates them to the point where it is difficult for them to be able to breathe. Well, in the face of tremendous adversity, the question is, is to where can the people of God turn to find refuge? To whom can we turn? Where can we find safety? Where can we find shelter? And it's here in the 46th Psalm that the psalmist gives the answer. The people of God can ultimately and only turn to our creator, to our Lord, and to our Redeemer, our God. And so what I want us to do is I want us to reflect with the psalmist as to what he has to say as... The fact that God is our fortress in times of trouble. And so first, we want to give thought to what the psalmist has to say about the fact that we can have peace in the midst of the storms of life, whatever the nature of those storms may be. Secondly, the source of the peace that we have in the midst of the storms is nothing less than God with us, his presence, his love, his care, and his concern for us. And then third and finally, it's important that we recognize that when we go through sufferings, when we go through trials, it is not simply that we are all alone. One of the things that the psalm highlights, and it may not be immediately evident upon a first reading, but when we go into uh, the the finer details, we're going to see that the psalmist highlights that we can say it in this way, we are alone yet together. We may feel alone, but we are nevertheless together. In other words, it is the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, that goes through these troubling times, but with the comforting, loving, and redeeming presence of God in Christ to be our fortress and our shield. So let's give thought to what the psalmist has to say about peace in the midst of the storm, first and foremost. As I mentioned already, the psalm begins with nothing less than the upheaval of the creation. You know, he, the psalmist echoes language that we find elsewhere in the Psalter, such as in the 11th Psalm, verses 3 and 4. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the psalmist gives the answer in Psalm chapter 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So in other words, it may seem as if all is chaotic. It may seem as if things are out of control. It may even seem as if perhaps God has forgotten us or that he is off running an errand or he does not take note of our suffering or of the turmoil. And yet the psalmist says in Psalm 11, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, As disordered as things may seem here upon the earth, they aren't. God is in control. Nothing can shake the foundations of heaven. No one can take God off of his throne. And so the psalmist here gives a similar answer. You know, he says again in verse two, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, he points us to the very foundations of heaven when he says in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. <clears throat> now, in Jerusalem itself, there is no river that runs through the earthly city of Jerusalem. And so, therefore, we know from this geographic fact that the psalmist is pointing our attention to The very throne of God. Recall in the Garden of Eden, which was, we can say, the first earthly dwelling place of God in the midst of his people, a river flowed out of Eden and broke into four river heads. We also know from the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, that there is a river that flows out of the new Jerusalem. And so the psalmist, I think, is reminding us of the peaceful serenity uh, in the pristine world before the intrusion of sin. He's pointing us back. He's reminding us to the very presence of God in the Garden of Eden. But there's a sense in which we can say this is a trip back to the future as we look back to Eden and we circle back and we also take note of the river that flows out of heaven itself, that it flows out of the peaceful gates of Zion. He's pointing us to the realities of the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation. And in contrast here, notice to verse two, the roaring and the foaming waters of this world, the river of Zion is a source of joy. And it makes glad the city of God. You know, I, I know that everybody has perhaps different likes and preferences, but what comes to mind is the thrashing sea. There have been an occasion or two when my family and I have been vacationing near, uh, near or at the beach, and uh, a storm blows in. And, you know, you can see with great clarity, the bolts of lightning as they come dancing from the, the heavens down into the water and you see the flashes of light and you can take a look and you can watch the ocean as it is churning and it is seemingly angry with energy. And you can contrast that with the sounds of a peaceful flowing stream. A stream that has just that trickle, you listen to it And it just perhaps naturally instills a sense of peace in you. And so here, there is this river that makes glad the city of God. It's peaceful. Why is it it peaceful? Because its source comes from the very throne of heaven itself, from beneath the throne of God. And from behind the sturdy, impregnable gates of the new Jerusalem, The inhabitants of the holy city can look out upon the unstable world. They can see, as the author says in verse 6, the nation's rage and the kingdom's totter. You know, in other words, how many of us have ever observed traumatic events, but blessedly from a distance? so that as you see the events unfold, you know that you stand upon a safe perch. You know, there's a sense in which you get that feeling when you're watching, say, a documentary about a tragedy. You know that you rest safe and secure sitting on your couch because you know that the events are distant from you. Well, here there is a greater sense of safety that we can have because as we watch the nation's rage, as we watch the kingdom's totter, as we see the world lose its mind, if we have a proper foundation, resting sure as we stand from the gates of heaven and look out upon the world, listening to the river that runs through New Jerusalem that makes glad the city of God, then we can look out upon the world with a sense of peace. It's not that we think that we can ignore the raging nations or that we somehow are indifferent to what goes on in the world, but rather we know who's in control. It is God who is in control. Moreover, what the psalmist is conveying to us is that God protects his people. He watches over us. He places his gates around us. And so thus, the psalmist says in verse 9, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Think of how many times, whether we're talking about God's actions in the book of Judges, whether we're talking about Israel's deliverance from Egypt, whether we're talking about Gideon's defeat of the Assyrians. In all of these different instances that are spread from the beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end, God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over the nations, despite their raging, despite their power, despite... Uh, their the, the force that they have with their military might they are as nothing in the presence of the lord god can end wars he can uh, turn the heart of the king in his hands and so what the psalmist points us to is the psalmist says don't look to the unrest that you see in the world but rather rest assured in the peace of zion Rest assured in the firm foundations of heaven itself. Rest assured in the protection and the safety that only God can give. And this, therefore, brings us to our second point. Is that when the author here of the psalm points us to the peace of Zion and to the joy that comes from the new Jerusalem, it's not so much the place It's not so much the place as much as the chief inhabitant of the new Jerusalem. In other words, how often have you ever given thought to this is that, at least for me, it doesn't really matter where I am. It doesn't matter where I am in the world. To me, it ultimately matters who I'm with. If I'm with my family, then I feel like we can be pretty much anywhere And we can find a degree of joy and contentment simply being together. And so I think that this is what the psalmist wants us to understand is that it's not heaven itself because heaven itself is not heaven unless God's presence is there. It is God's presence that makes heaven what it is. It is God's presence that flows out of, new, uh, out of Zion uh, like the river that runs through it that gives joy. It is God's presence that imparts and conveys peace to the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem. Again, notice in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God And then notice the immediate phrase right after it, the holy habitation of the Most High. It's not the river, but rather it is God's presence, the one who gives the river. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We rest not in our own capacities, abilities, and strengths. We rest not in the might of arms or in the security that money can give or the supposed uh, protection that friends or people in powerful places can give, but rather the psalmist says the people of God take shelter and rest in the very presence of God. It's God's presence that ultimately constitutes the true foundation of Zion. Wherever God dwells, that's where you find heaven. Whether it's in Eden, or whether it's at Sinai, in the Holy of Holies, or here in the New Jerusalem that the psalmist writes of. But I think we must not forget one of the most important dwelling places of God. There's a particular phrase here in verse 6 the Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. Here in the Hebrew, and I'll give you the Hebrew, not because I'm trying to show off, but because I want you to hear something. In other words, I never needlessly bludgeon you with Hebrew. We don't want to do that. But in the Hebrew, it says, Yahweh Sabaoth Imanu. Yahweh Sabaoth Imanu. He, the Hebrew here gives us God with us is the first part of the name of Emmanuel, God with us. Imanu. Yahweh Sabaoth Imanu. This statement points us ultimately to the greatest revelation of God in Christ. Who is Emmanuel? Who is Emmanuel? The prophet Isaiah said that God with us, Emmanuel, you will call his name Emmanuel, looking forward to the birth of the Messiah. And who is it that is born with the the announcement of the angels, but Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the greatest manifestation of God's presence uh, in our midst? According to the gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What makes Zion so special, so unique, is the presence of God, but it's the presence that is especially manifest through the revelation of Jesus Christ. God has entered into our human condition. Christ has come into the far country to redeem prodigals like us. He has lived, he has suffered, he has died, and he's been raised from the dead so that we can know the peace of heaven. Because of God with us in Christ... He is, as we read in verse 1, a very present help in trouble, whatever that trouble may be. Is it that guilt and soul-crushing weight of sin that makes us think that God could never forgive us, that keeps us up at night, that makes us think that we're off on our own? Is it the, 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 the turmoil that we see when we turn on our computers and our TVs and, and we look at the chaos in the world? Whatever it might be, it is God's presence in Christ who is a very present help in trouble. In other words, in the moment, at this present moment, God's presence in Christ In our hearts, the indwelling power and work of the Holy Spirit is a very present help in the midst of our trouble. It's Christ who can convey to us a sense of peace. It is Christ who, in the midst of our sufferings and our difficulties, can impart to us a sense of joy. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials and tribulations, says James in the opening chapter of his epistle. How is it that you can encounter joy? Because in Christ, we know that he is present with us. And not only is he present, but we know that by his sovereign will, he is using the events in our lives to conform us to his image. He's sanctifying us. He's purifying us. He's pouring out upon us his love. But at the same time, not only is God's presence in Christ a present help in trouble, but as verse 10 tells us, he is also the source of our future peace. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, the present peace that we know, the peace that we have in the forgiveness of sins, the peace that we have with God because of the work of Christ is simply but a foretaste of the eternal rest and peace that we shall shall have. Or, to quote Martin Luther's famous hymn, which we will sing in a few moments, which is based upon Psalm 46, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name. From age to age the same, he must win the battle. When Luther wrote the words of that uh, very popular and well-known hymn, as, as he reflected upon Psalm 46, he saw the answer in God's presence in Christ. We're not the right man on our side, Dust, uh, that, uh, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. It was Christ who is that present help for Luther. It is Christ who is our present help as well as our future help. Christ delivers us from Satan, sin, and death, and even now protects us in the midst of the chaos of this world. He gives us both a present and future hope through his all-sufficient redemption. Third and finally, we have to recognize that as, as much as we may think that we're alone sometimes in this world, that we're not. You see, the only place in which we can find shelter is in Christ Jesus, as Luther says, the man of God's own choosing. But this isn't something that we must do alone or that we can do alone. We don't stand alone with Christ against the world. We rather stand alone together. I don't know if you've noticed this, but at a number of key places in the psalm, take note of the plural personal pronouns. In verse 1, God is our refuge. Verse 2, therefore we will not fear. Verses 7 and 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. Jacob is our fortress. In other words, the psalmist is not making this cry alone. And when we take the words of the psalmist upon our own lips, hearts, and minds, we do not utter them alone, but we utter them together with the people of God. I think that it can make all the difference in the world having the presence of somebody else with you as you look upon the situation that you have to face. I think, for for example, it's my children, sometimes they are most fearful when they have to do something alone. You know, it's like uh, my daughter is getting ready to go to camp in a couple of weeks to Twin Lakes. And all of a sudden she had this massive fear break out into her heart. I decided I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I made a rash decision. <laughs> I, I told you I wanted to go when I really didn't want to go. We said, just calm down, calm down. And one of the things we told her is we said, look, first of all, it's not for a couple of weeks. It's like four weeks away. You know, by that point in the summer, you're probably going to get tired of us. (laughs) You're going to be like, get me out of here. No, but in all seriousness, we told her, you know what? You're going to have some of your friends with you. Some of your schoolmates are going to be there. And some of your friends from church are going to be there. You're not going to be alone. In other words, sometimes when the, 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 the specter of the great unknown faces us, We recoil and we want to withdraw because we fear being alone. And yet the psalmist says here, you are not alone. God in Christ is with you. And not only is God in Christ with you, but so is his body. So is his church. I think this is the same spirit that animates the Lord's Prayer when he begins the opening words. When Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer... Our Father. You immediately know that you do not stand alone because you open that prayer with the first person personal pronoun. Our Father. In other words, you pray that together with the rest of the body of Christ. We stand alone together. We stand behind Christ as his body, united to our head and our Savior. And again, as Luther writes, and though this world with devil's fills, should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. In fact, what the psalmist calls for in verses 8 and 9 is for the church, essentially, to sing the mighty acts of God to one another. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but... I don't like singing too much by myself. You know, if somebody said, here, why don't you sing a tune? I'd be like, no thanks, I'll pass. But what about when we sing to one another, when we sing together in gathered corporate worship? In other words, one of the things that we do in corporate worship is we not only sing songs to the Lord, we praise Him, we lift up His name, we give Him thanks we extol his virtues. We extol his, his grace. But we're also singing to one another. So the psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, verse 8. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots of fire. One of the things, therefore, we're supposed to do for one another as we see the, 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 the earth seemingly give way is encourage one another by singing to one another, by telling one another of the works of God's God's creation and the works of God's redemption. The mighty things that he has done to deliver his people in the past are the mighty things that he will do to deliver us in the present as well as in the future. What is it that Paul says in this vein in Colossians 3.16? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So when we go to sing Psalm 46 in Luther's iteration of it, in a mighty fortress is our God, remember you're singing this praise to God, but we're also singing it to one another, telling one another our God is a mighty fortress. Our God has given us salvation in His Son. Our God is the one who is present in Christ. He is with us. He is with you. He is with me. Beloved, in stressful times, combat psychologists say that one of the most important things to do is to pause, take a moment, breathe, Gain your bearings, and then press on. Stop, take a moment, breathe, gain your bearings, and then press on. And in fact, I was reading this one book about the psychology of combat, and it says, the author said, one of the things you can do is take five deep breaths, That will help lower your heart rate, it helps get you oriented, and you can often settle yourself and then press forward in the face of whatever it is that you fear. Well, In the same manner, I believe that the psalmist is giving us the same advice. Not in those precise words, but notice what the psalmist says in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. In the face of crushing sin, seek God in Christ and seek the forgiveness that he offers. In the face of trials, of unrest, of tribulation, take a moment. Stop. Take deep breaths. Breathe in the truth of the gospel of Christ. Breathe in the air of the new creation. Breathe in the air of heaven itself so that it would fill your lungs with strength, so that it would fill your spirit with life, so that it would fill your spirit with a sense of peace and joy that only Christ gives us by his grace. And seek shelter in the mighty fortress of Yahweh in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that indeed you are our mighty fortress. For in Christ, you are Emmanuel, God with us. And were the right man not on our side, the man of your own choosing, we would be without hope. So often, O Lord, the things of this world, the challenges that we face, the fears that seemingly choke out our faith, seem to have greater influence upon us than your word. We pray, O Lord, that in the face of our fears, in the face of the chaos that we see, perhaps even at times in the face of persecution or even in the face of natural disasters, O Lord, whatever it is that we fear, help us to remember that you are our fortress, that you have forgiven us of our sins in Christ that you are a heavenly father that cares for us moment by moment. We pray that we would stop, that we would be still and know that you are God, that you are strong to save. Your love is over overly abundant and gracious. And that you watch over us moment by moment, day by day, and that not a single hair falls from our head apart from your will. Father, cement these truths in our hearts so that we would rest assured in the unshakable foundations of heaven itself. That though the waters may foam and the sea may roar and the earth may give way, we will stand firm upon you, our rock, the rock of our salvation. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.